Here's a memorable Peterson tweet about ants. Oh, this was wrong. It says 30% of the ants do 70% of the work. Not a consequence of the West or capitalism, in case it needs to be said. Now, fun thing about this is if you click through to the study, it's wrong about most of this. Um, in fact, when it talks about a lot of ants not working a lot of times, that's because there's like this complex cooperative system of working in shifts for the good of the whole group. Uh, so it's almost the opposite of what Peterson's taken from it. But again, all of this makes it really hard to take this seriously. And if you just kind of see Peterson as this eccentric who you know has this weird jumble of views and for culturally contingent reasons he happens to be getting a lot of attention right now, then it might not be clear you know how much effort the left should sort of devote to you know, doing things like this conference. All right, so I want to try to and you know when I was originally doing this, the temptation to make fun of Peterson a lot more than I'm doing right now was almost overwhelming. Uh, I found a passage in Maps of Meaning uh, where he's talking about a dream he had about his beautiful cousin, which is the funniest thing that I've ever read. Oh, could you send that to me? That's yeah. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> All right. My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I am joined, as always, by our super producer, Jake Appett, and our very talented graphic designer, Jay Andrew World. Uh, I'm going to be joined in just a few minutes uh, by Cedric Johnson, who is the author of a very good book called After Black Lives Matter, uh, which uh, we are going to be talking about. It's actually going to be, uh, well, I mean, I have talked to the man outside of this, but it's going to be the second time I've, I've talked to him in a podcast setting. Uh, the first time was years ago uh, on uh, the Dead Pundits uh, Society. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, in uh, the Post game, uh, well, actually, I'm, let me just uh, let me just take a minute on this to uh, to uh, to build up. So, uh, what you saw at the beginning there was a little moment from a lecture in uh, 2018 uh, when I was being heckled uh, in uh, in a friendly way by uh, the late great Michael Brooks. Uh, that is the uh, first uh, the first interaction between the two of us that was ever captured on YouTube. Uh, and I've been thinking about that a lot this week uh, because uh, the third anniversary of his passing is uh, is coming up on uh, coming up on Thursday, you know, which sometimes feels like um, you know a few months ago. It sometimes feels like something that happened fifty years ago, uh, and you know, had me thinking about you know the my time on uh, on the Michael Brooks show. And um, and I've been watching some old clips of that. For example, this one. Welcome to the post game. Michael Brooks here with the team and Harvey J.K., turning champion. How are you doing, Professor K? When I'm with you, and I'm only sorry I have to talk to Ben long, still long distance. Okay? Still long distance. Still well, long one distance. day, well, I'm sure you'll meet. Yeah. Uh, ben Burgess. Ben Burgess is, of course, our resonant logic guy. Uh, coming to bring us some logic. Uh, we discovered that he's an Aries, so it makes sense. I had wondered why he was so into all of that shit, but I read his so chart. He's an Aries and, I get and it now. I'm the Libran. And, uh, yeah, you're a Libra. Uh, he's an Aries. And um, every time this triggers people, I'm only going to talk about it more. That I can promise you. That you can bank 
So what Ben Burgess tries to do is pretend that his feelings that he gets from the estrogen in the environment are actually logic <laughs> instead of just a sensitive desire to be a fucking pussy. <laughs> That's what I call logic for the left. Hey, Ben, can we do an actual reasoning process together? Oh, the poor people. I don't want them to, to work. I feel so sad. <laughs> Let me find a Bertrand Russell quote. By the way, Bertrand Russell, also a pussy. He's your hero. He's a freaking vegetarian who can hold a Is job. that his hero? Is that yes. his hero? Yes, that is his hero. Yeah, this is... Uh, we this come out of two different traditions, is, uh, I can tell. Mm. Wow. Yeah. No. Wow, fight amongst the, the cocks. Uh, Two different traditions of caring about la lazy, shiftless people and peace. <laughs> Piece of shit. I support the wheelchair guy. No, I support the vegetarian guy. <laughs> You're talking to two sides of Ben now, I think. Yeah, no. Uh, so we have to, uh, speaking of which, actually, I, I forgot to send, speaking of uh, fascist machismo, I... I will send to you guys and, or maybe Vic could uh, Vic, if you're listening, you could tweet at them. Uh, this incredible footage of Bolsonaro encouraging a bunch of people around him to drop to the ground and do push-ups, And then he can't, <laughs> there has to be a really powerful metaphor in there. Uh, and obviously we have to do that on the show. Um, fucking Bolsonaro's fighting the cultural Marxists. All right. Hello, Ben. How are you? That was uh a right wing Mandela I'm, I'm interlude. Good. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm actually uh right wing Mandela feels like an appropriate warm up since I'm going on the uh, uh Jesse Lee Peterson show tomorrow morning what and the I, fuck? I think that, you know, I uh, thought I was wait a second. I, wait, wait, wait. We have two pieces of business to deal with. First we gotta play your song. <laughs> and uh the way that uh that, that ends once you know right wing Mandela is gone and Michael's back, uh is a way that after, uh, I think I figured this out, I think July uh, 2019. Uh, so after that, uh, pretty much all of these, if you go back and watch them, all of these are still available on the TNBS uh, channel on YouTube. Or if you go to uh, to this channel at the very bottom, there's a, uh, there's a link to get a playlist with all of them. Uh, we'll start with, are you ready uh, for your song? And it's this uh, this debunk song that uh, that has the samples of my conversations with with, uh, with Michael in it. Anybody who's watching that at the time uh, will remember that very well. Uh, the actual song uh, we're going to play at the outset of the post game because we're going to be joined for the post game by the musician and DSALA activist uh, who uh, who contributed that song, uh, Ed Keenan. So uh, very excited about that. He's going to also uh, share uh, some uh, uh, some of his other uh, music with us. Talk a little bit about DSA stuff. Should be uh, should be really fun. Uh, really looking forward to uh, to doing that. Uh, Ed is also going to be the second ever in studio GTAA guest. Uh, the first is going to uh, you know be coming up in about twenty minutes or less, uh, which is going to be Cedric Johnson. But a couple of the things we want to hit. Uh, before uh, before we get uh, to uh, to Cedric, so uh, one of them is uh, a article that um, 
that I had in Jacobin that came out actually just after uh, the uh, the last episode um, about the sort of human nature objection to uh, to socialism. Uh, and that um, it's called Socialism Can Help Contain Humanity's Worst Impulses and Encourage Our Best, uh, which, you know, the is something that's that's bothered me for a very long time because I'll, you know, I, as long as I can remember, I've been seeing versions of this argument that, uh, no, 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 you know, socialism sounds nice. Okay, I can see why, you know, I can see why you'd like that idea. Uh, but me, wise, world-weary person, you know, knows that uh, we can't have that because people are, you know, cruel and selfish. You know, they're not uh, benevolent and cooperative the way that they would have to be for your nice, benevolent, cooperative economy to work. And it seemed to me for a long time that this argument is actually asked backwards because it's one thing um, – you know, look, whatever you want to say about the human nature question, and I know there are socialists who, who feel sort of uh, ideologically compelled to say that there's uh, there's no such thing, which I think is a you know huge oversimplification. Um, you know, our brains evolved in a certain way. I mean, there are going to be things that are you know transhistorically true of it. There are also going to be things about it that are going to be historically contingent. Uh, and, uh, and what the sort of balance of different impulses there is incredibly complicated. And you can't really decide from the armchair. You know, you need actual science uh, to uh, to weigh in on that. But it's always seemed to me that to whatever extent you're worried that uh, people are going to be cruel and selfish, then this gives you a reason to worry about having a wildly unequal distribution of resources and having a wildly unequal distribution of, of power. I mean, if you uh, if everybody were an angel, you wouldn't really need to worry about lots of people having power over other people, you wouldn't need to worry that they would handle that the way that, you know, Jeff Bezos handles uh, the power that he has over workers in his warehouses or uh, Harvey Weinstein, you know, I handle the power that he had over aspiring actresses. Uh, you wouldn't need to worry that people who were in really bad shape um, and uh, and desperately needed help wouldn't get it because, you know, people would always swoop in to, uh, to, to individually help them, et cetera. That, you know, you want an egalitarian distribution of resources, and in particular, you want an egalitarian distribution of power uh, for, I think, precisely in order to limit the damage that uh, that people people can do to each other. So that's the, that's the point of that article. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping um, everyone in a capitalist system from, like, donating every, like every chunk of their salary that they don't actually need to people who are less fortunate. Right. Uh, so I think if, if that could happen voluntarily under capitalism, it pro probably already would have. Uh, so, I mean, I guess it depends what level of, uh, of human flourishing and inequality you actually, you actually want, I guess the human nature people, um, the right wing human nature people are saying that like, this is kind of the best humanity can do. Right. Uh, right. Which, is a, which is a sad thought, but I, I, I I, I I agree with you. It doesn't really hold that. It doesn't really hold water once you put it under a microscope. Well, that point about the best humanity can do is a good segue to uh, the uh, the other one. The uh, so I there's also the one about AOC. But if we talk about that, we're going to talk about it in the post game. Uh, there's um, but the one that uh, just came out a few days ago. It's about G. A. Cohen called the tragic failure of the Soviet experiment. Uh, doesn't mean. 
we should uh, reject socialism. Uh, and it's going back to look at this article that uh, the great late Marxist philosopher uh, Gerald Allen Cohen, uh, G.A. Cohen, wrote for the New Left Review in uh, November, December 1991, which would be the last issue of the New Left Review before the fall of the Soviet Union. In fact, the you know, fall of the Soviet Union happened, uh, I guess, during that period. Uh, the um, so uh, the sort of big official ceremony where they lowered the Soviet flag and played the anthem last time was on uh, December 25th, uh, 1991. And it's a really interesting article because he goes into his own history with this. Uh, he talks about being raised in this Canadian Communist Party family in Montreal uh, and um, being sent as uh, as a kid to uh, this was the Morris Winchowski School, uh, which uh, was a school where he said in the mornings they learned regular uh, primary school subjects in English, and in the afternoon they uh, they got uh, the revolutionary content in Yiddish, uh, and um, and so he has this great line in there about you know one of his classes was the Geschichte der Kulturkunft, which is uh, Yiddish for a uh, history of class struggle. Uh, which he uh, he he uh, proudly says he got a straight alif on in 1949, uh, but uh, in um, but you know like many people you know he went through a process of uh, disillusionment you know with the the Soviet Union and you know and, and feeling that it, it actually wasn't uh, embodying you know these kinds of socialist ideals that uh, that he cared about that were instilled in him in the school at a young age etc. Uh, and, you know, he says at the beginning that, well, looks like at this point, you know, the Soviet Union or pieces of what was the Soviet Union are destined for a return of capitalism or fall into very severe authoritarianism or possibly both, um, which, you know, is uh, I think option number three is the closest to what actually uh, to what actually happened. Uh, but, you know, what he's talking about is, OK, so given that what comes next? Right, like, do you do you just give up on on trying to achieve these ideals? Do you uh, do you just not care about it anymore, um, or do you say, okay, um, let's you know we need to maybe try differently, right? Uh, but uh, but nevertheless, uh, try again, right? So there's this. The article ends with this quote uh, from uh, from near the end of the article. Uh, where he um, he says, uh, do we have the quote? Yeah. Uh, philosophers, least of all, right, addressing his fellow professional philosophers should join the contemporary choruses of Dirge and Hosanna, whose common refrain is uh, that the socialist project is over. I am sure that it has a long way to go yet, and it is part of the mission of philosophy to explore unanticipated possibilities, which, um, granted, Certainly wasn't how anybody understood the mission of philosophy when I was, uh, you know, grad school or whatever. But uh, it's a yeah, it's a version of it that I like a lot, uh, and uh, and yeah, would uh, would point people uh, towards that 1991 uh, Cohen article. I think it's very good stuff. But uh, unless either of you guys wanted to, uh, to chime in on that. Uh, wanted to uh, to set up uh, last thing we're gonna do before Cedric comes on, uh, which is uh, a little while ago. People may remember we played just a little bit because this was all that was available uh, publicly at that point 
from a debate that I did last year at the uh, festival in Hay in Wales with, among other people, uh, Thangnam uh, Debonair, who's a Labour Party MP, uh, who's um, actually, I will say in this discussion, she comes off okay, right? You know, you can, you can tell that, um, you know, she sort of comes off moderately social democratic. I think she's actually probably a lot worse than you get a sense of here. I mean, she was very anti-Corbyn, et cetera, but, uh, within the Labour Party. But uh, in any case, they have released a, uh, a much longer uh, chunk of that. So uh, we are going to play that before we go to Cedric. I would like to be paid 500 times more than you so I can have my own spaceship. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I'm also not going to do very much except sign off on final decisions. That's probably going to be a hard no. We're going to start by talking about whether social hierarchy is in itself unavoidable. And Ben, you're the one who, in the panel who's come closest to a sort of, whether it's democratic socialist or Marxist view of society in which we're much more equal than we are now. But even in communist regimes, there's a huge amount of social hierarchy, isn't there? You know, party members get better flats than non-party members. Yeah, well, I don't actually think that's a great model. I mean, if the uh, if the question is, if the question about whether we can have a better kind of society than we have right now is, can we recreate East Germany? I would vote no. Let's not do that, right? Uh, but I happily, I don't think the choices are East Germany or the sort of uh, late capitalist hellscape that we have right now. You know, I think there are other options, and I think there are real life precedents. For other options, you know, we can look at things that have been successfully beta tested under capitalism, uh, national ownership of certain industries. I would point out healthcare in this country, you know, which has been wildly successful uh, in many ways, um, you know, so much so that even conservative politicians have to pretend to not want to get rid of it entirely uh, or else they would never win another election. I would point to uh, successful uh, worker cooperatives like Mondragon Federation in Spain. So I think there are real life precedents that show that other things are possible. You know, if you put the, if you put these elements together in a different way, now, can you get rid of hierarchy entirely? I think it depends what you mean, right? So if hierarchy means there are functionally certain people who have the ability to make certain decisions, then no, I think any, you know, I mean, anybody who's ever been to the kind of meeting where people are supposed to do, you know, jazz hands instead of clapping and, you know, come to consensus and everything probably has wanted to kill themselves after a few minutes of that. I don't advocate that as a model for anything, you know. Uh, I think you do need a certain amount of operational hierarchy in practice that certain people are empowered to do things and, you know, make decisions. But I think it needs to be paired with democratic accountability. I think that's the, uh, I think that's the key point that the, do you mean democratic accountability within the organization or politically at, at a national level? Yeah, uh, both. I think that I think that within organizations, I think democratic accountability is good. I think if you you know, I think if you look at decisions, for example, made during COVID about um, you know when people had to go to work and what ways and all of that stuff, you know, you can see some really bad effects of um, the people who these decisions most affect not having very much say in them, uh, and. You know, and look, again, if hierarchy just means that anybody has more of anything than anybody else, sure. Right? I think that they, you know, 
even in a worker cooperative, you don't have completely where everybody gets to vote on wage scales. You don't have completely flat wage scales, you know, that you have some people being paid more than others for all sorts of reasons. You know, here's something you want me to do that involves a lot of stress and responsibility. You know, I'd like more money if I'm going to do that. Here's something that I'd like to do, you know, that you're asking me to do that's really dirty and dangerous, right? I'd like more to do that. Both of those are totally legitimate, but you're just not going to have, given that democratic accountability, you're just not going to have the level of inequality that you have within the kind of economy that we have right now. If I, if you go to your fellow workers and say, I would like to be paid 500 times more than you so I can have my own spaceship, <laughs> uh, and I'm also not going to do very much except sign off on final decisions, that's probably going to be a hard no. Okay, so you're happy with some hierarchy, but just a flatter one, basically. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Namon, I'm playing devil's advocate here, by the way. Um, uh, Namon, you're talking about how university educated people are sort of unduly rewarded. On the other hand, if you want to persuade people to spend three, four, for some professions, seven years of their lives in academic training for that profession, surely they ought to be more rewarded for it afterwards. Because they're not earning money during that time, whereas people kept picking up the knowledge on the job or at least being paid while they're getting the knowledge. Yeah, I don't I don't think we shouldn't be rewarding uh, university study by any means, because I think there are, um, you know, there's there's lots of skill and, and, and you need to go to study certain for certain jobs you, you're we not want our brain to... surgeons trained don't we well <laughs> i mean you do, but i i guess we're looking at um at, at what um the rewards that aren't there for those people who haven't taken that path and perhaps um making it more yeah equitable where we can um and and i don't think that um our current system where uh, knowledge gained in that way is um, is rewarded higher is is going to you know um, take us into the next century or be able to kind of um, provide us with a, a kind of framework by which we should be looking at how we can make a more equitable society because I think um, it, it's it, it just doesn't work for everybody. Does any society work for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I'm going to chuck in um, another line of thought, which is a group of people for whom none of this works are people who are undocumented or illegal and who have crossed a border, possibly with extremely good reason. In fact, in my experience as an MP with the highest immigration caseload in the country, I would say mostly with extremely good reason and usually with legal cause, but are pushed out of a system such that... Those jobs which people have now walked away from in the documented legal market will be filled eventually probably by illegal, undocumented, low security, low pay, poor conditions. So they will not be able to say to an employer, you want me to do this dirty, dangerous work, I want more money. They'll probably just be going, I'm grateful for the work and be exploited. They will be doing right now. If you if you ask yourselves, where are all the baggage handlers at airports? You can tell this has struck a chord with me this week. Um, <laughs> Did you well, try to fly <laughs> somewhere this week? <laughs> tried and failed, tried and failed. Um, you oh. can see that actually they, because it's also on the Eurostar, by the way, um, yeah. you can see that there are, are, are these are places in the labor market where there will remain gaps if in order to take up employment in an airport or the Eurostar terminal, you do have to be security checked. But in those other jobs, such as being an Uber driver or um, one of the cycling delivery companies or the grocery delivery companies, there will be an attraction, a pull factor for those who are undocumented if nobody else wants to do those jobs. And they don't have the same sort of power 
to demand better working conditions. Um, those that so that that illegality framework also needs to be placed on top of also the gender framework, which Namone rightly put there, which is that the jobs that we have traditionally undervalued that are sometimes it turns out they are skilled, but we just didn't think of those as skills traditionally have been dominated by women and that has continued what we can now add on to that not just gender but also race and migration status that creates an underclass of people who are very vulnerable to being very exploited and will have little say in whether or not they ever get a decent job or decent pay and actually sectors that become feminized it's not just ones that started feminized but but industries and sectors that become feminized see relative pay rates fall yes which i think is really interesting Yes, they do. I mean, an extreme example from another country is that of um, prostitution or the paid sexual exploitation of women. And in the Netherlands, when that was legalised around the turn of the century, um, the argument was made, this is a form of work like any other. When it is legalised, it will be regularised. Those women will then form unions. They will demand better paying conditions. From whom, I wonder? And (laughs) in fact, what happened was women's choices, the Dutch women's choices were opening up anyway in other careers. So over the course of the last two decades, that so-called job like any other has come to be dominated by undocumented, illegal or otherwise vulnerable women, marginalised women, trafficked women in particular, um, for whom the legal structure, all it's done is legalise their um, their exploitation, which is, yeah, I'm going to add another layer on top there. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> don't don't apologise. Um, but coming back to the sort of baggage handler problem, we might use a sort of shorthand and and the great resignation. Isn't the market just going to sort this out? Aren't we just going to have to, and it's already starting to happen in care homes, isn't it? You know, there's such a shortage of carers, thanks to Brexit, thanks to COVID, that they're actually going to have to be paid more. Hmm? Well, but are they? I mean, at the moment, I haven't seen any move from central government, and I do watch them rather closely, who are saying, yes, we will now give more money to local authorities when they purchase care from a care home. I've not seen that happening. All I've seen is local authorities continue to be underfunded. So although... Um, there are moves to say, yes, we should have better paying care homes. Where's the money coming from is a question that's not yet been answered. Mm. Okay, so we've been talking about the underpaid. Let's talk about the, I'm using air quotes, overpaid. Are they overpaid? Um, Are we overpaying professional and management roles? Given the amount of um, work that people have put into getting to those positions in the first place and the responsibility they then have to carry. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the job, but I would also point out, you know, even with the example ex- as extreme as as brain surgeons, and I think it is worth keeping in mind that the vast majority of people with upper middle class jobs are not brain surgeons, uh, don't have that level of contribution to society. Uh, but even with a job as extreme as that, I mean, since, you know, paying one person more means paying somebody else less, you know, there there is actually, you know, there are finite resources to uh, to go around, um, then the question is: Well, is not necessarily is it illegitimate for even the brain surgeon to you know to get a little bit more if that's what you need to incentivize people to be brain surgeons? It's is this level of inequality actually justified by uh, by the need for those incentives? And I'd also point out that, you know, part of the setup, you know, when you're talking about brain surgeons even, you know, it's about how well they're not making money during all of these years. Okay, well, that's a fixable problem, right? There have been societies and can be societies where people are paid 
you know, to uh, to attend school, especially if they're attending school to become brain surgeons. You know, they uh, we can uh, we can give them salaries during that time. I uh, I also think it's at least an open question whether um, in a society where more, everybody had their basic material needs met in a much more adequate way, how much just the value of social prestige would be enough to get people to want to do these jobs. And I think there is some evidence for that. You know, we like there are a range of societies historically and right now where some of these pay gaps are bigger or smaller than others. And it seems like people still want to do the more high prestige jobs where oftentimes they're doing more interesting tasks, have more control over what they're doing, all things that tend to appeal to human beings. I mean, like, I don't have specific statistics on brain surgeons, but, you know, the uh, the society in the world with the high, with the best doctor-to-patient ratio is Cuba. And, you know, and I'm, I'm fairly sure that's not because, you know, Cuban doctors are paid more extravagantly than they are anywhere else. In more socialist societies, or more egalitarian societies, I should say, perhaps like Scandinavian countries, is it that there are narrower pay differentials or is it just that taxes are higher? Because taxes are definitely much higher, which enables them to pay for, you know, uh, higher benefits and better childcare and all the things that you would want. Well, I think some of each uh, that, you know, I mean, certainly a large tax funded welfare state is a good thing. And, you know, and, uh, and I'm all in favor of it. But also, I don't think that you would get those in the Scandinavian countries without incredibly powerful labor unions that have, you know, again, without which you just would not have achieved that kind of welfare state that have, you know, to a certain extent, right? I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to romanticize societies that, you know, are um, not as fundamentally different as we may sometimes talk about them as being, but, you know, to a certain extent have equalized uh, wage levels in certain things. Like, you know, they'll engage in sectoral bargaining, right? So the, Union Federation is bargaining for wages across, you know, across an entire sector of the economy, which is the sort of thing that at least to an extent and at least within certain areas uh, does equalize wage levels. So I would argue the two go together. All right. Cedric, how are you doing? Doing good. Glad to be here. So, yeah, I am, you know, so obviously, you know, here to uh, talk about this uh, excellent book, uh, After Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I, I think that this is, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We were just talking about this off air uh, because, you know, in so many ways, this is a post 2020 book, you know, this is, this is a book that like kind of starts us off, you know, with, uh, with that moment and, you know, and, and kind of goes from there and, and is, is bouncing off of that. But, uh, but, you know, you were telling me a little bit off air. I mean, and, and I mean, I, I do, I did have some of this backstory because uh, the when Adam and I interviewed you on Dead Pundits, you know, you already like this book was already in motion, right. right? And that was like right at the beginning of this, right? So it's like, we, like when did the book sort of start to germinate in in your head originally? Yeah, I mean, so I think the original idea for the book starts with the, um, you know, the uh, Panthers can't save us now essay. Mm-hmm. But to, to rewind even, you know, even further back, I, um, I've been thinking about these issues, you know, policing because of my own biography and, you know, having grown up in Louisiana, doing the carceral expansion, uh, having participated in, you know, anti-death penalty work when I was like a teenager and things like that in Louisiana. So 
I um I've been thinking about these things for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I just think like I had my own running narrative or interpretation of the main causes behind the cost of expansion. Um, and I've been teaching about these things in classes, you know, since the you know late 90s. And so um, I think part of part of what sparked it was listening to the discussions about policing, listening to the ways that people primarily explained it through, um, you know, resorting to a, some some form of discussion of racism, either institutional racism or, or, or um, you know, thinking about a longer uh, meta narrative of white supremacy. And I was dissatisfied with with those explanations. And so um, I couldn't I couldn't let go of it. I felt like there was a need to say something and to intervene and to offer a different interpretation, both of uh, what were the main motors of this policing crisis, but also uh, what was necessary in order to to address it. Right. And so I think writing about, um, you know, Trayvon Martin and writing about all these different events as they were unfolding, taking part in in protest in, in Chicago around the the killing of Laquan mm. McDonald, all these different things kind of pushed me in the direction of writing something and writing something that would be very different from what I was hearing from colleagues and activists and friends. Maybe a different way of of kind of getting into this a little bit is that something you emphasize in the book mm. is that um, you know this sort of um, framework of Black Lives Matter that that rhetoric certainly that hashtag you know mm. uh, activism that was uh, sort of filtered through there. Uh, all of that, um, you know, all that didn't start in 2020. I mean, 2020 uh, was when it it came back, and it came back in a in a much bigger way right. than it had been before. But that had all been, you know, been building for for several years, right? Like you know, right. mentioned Trayvon Martin, which was I want to say like uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was at least when the trial was uh, right. was was happening. Um, and, uh, and so, so you were, um, so, you know, you were saying, you know, you were involved in, uh, you know, you were involved in protests and, you know, in Chicago, you were thinking about this, you know, kind of from that background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a couple of things to try to, to try to, um, parse out, right. So one, uh, any policing activism has been going on for a long time, right? We could go back to the 1960s. We could talk about the Reagan-Bush period, where there's like a spate of protest across the country in response mm. to police killings of uh, Eleanor Bumpfuss in New York City, um, you know, Malice Green in Detroit, all sorts of individualized uh, situations. Even, you know, in the late 90s, um, the shooting of Amadou Diallo, which I mm. remember attending a mm-hmm. protest on the steps of the Capitol, with my son, who's actually 25 now, right? You know, being there at a protest with him when he was a kid. So I think um, we've been we've been seeing these protests for a long time. The issue I think we should try to think clearly about is how is Black Lives Matter different, right? And and a lot of it has to do with the the broad banner, um, which suggests that the primary problem here is one of racist policing. There's this mm. longer longer history of protests which involves all sorts of different figures, socialists, liberals, you know, civil rights attorneys, all sorts of different characters. And the protest that we're seeing in the era of, of hashtags and social media. And so I think this is something different. And um, the problem that I'm raising in the book is that it's, it's, it actually doesn't really provide us with the kind of um, analysis of the society overall. And it's driven primarily by a sensational, uh, mode of organizing around viral videos mm. 
and uh, the use of social media, right? So it kind of leads in a much more liberal direction than what we need. Yeah. So I, I do, I do want to get into that and follow that last uh, thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the way that a lot of this stuff gets driven by, by viral videos is, is also interesting. I mean, like, and, and, and you know, the fact that I'm in black lives matter, I mean, that's originally a, a hashtag, right. You know, right. that that's um, because that's just a very different way of protest energy kind of getting going than what you would have if, you know, in a different historical era where there are sort of organizations mm-hmm. kind of making decisions about which, uh, which cases to highlight, you know, right. as, as opposed to people just, um, you know, like things happening to catch fire mm-hmm. on social media and everybody, everybody responding to them, which, which is sometimes, a you know, double-edged sword. Cause I mean, the good thing about it is that it means that things that might've flown under the radar, you know, right. uh, don't, but it also, means that you know like sometimes there's a danger that you know if if things had been vetted you know people Mm -hmm. would react to them differently you know because this is this is just um it's not that like somebody looked at this as like okay this is this is going to be a promising one to to go after it's just like this is what happened to blow up right yeah i mean so let me say a couple of things about social media good and bad right and then then try to answer the question i um i think it's been great as far as like creativity Mm. right you think about the the sheer, um, you know, um, cavalcade of, of comedy, right? You know, all sorts of uh, creative expression, artwork, music, dance, other things that are, then, you know, shown through through various social media platforms. Um, and not even professional influences and that sort of thing, but just individual moments that families and other people are capturing that they're sharing that circulate widely. That's actually exciting in a way. I mean, as much as I'm down mm. on social media and the mm-hmm. ways people think about it politically, I think the ways in which we're now able to um, not just entertain ourselves, but then connect with other people uh, is, is actually a good thing. The problem with it politically, right, and especially as it relates to uh, police killings, they're only showing certain certain images, right, and certain killings, right? So many police killings are not videotaped, um, are not video recorded. So while having cell phones in everybody's hands mm-hmm. opens up this opportunity for us to all be monitors of police if necessary, right? That's a great thing. Um, we're being highly selective about which cases we we share, which cases become those worth mobilizing around, you know. And there's been there's been a few incidents where you've seen people who've actually been armed. It's been really clear that they've been armed, mm-hmm. and the police action may have very well been justified. Those don't become mm-hmm. moments for uh, Black Lives Matter mobilization the other thing too is it 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 because of the ways it circulates where Mm -hmm. like once you've watched one of these videos or once you it's clear from the vantage point of the algorithm that you are interested in looking at certain kinds of of uh media or stories you're going to be fed more of those right so it actually alters our consciousness about what's happening so you're Mm -hmm. only seeing um the most damaging and violent images of you know people fighting you know inside of a fucking mcdonald's or something like that right all sorts of sensational imagery which is different even from the old-fashioned curated you know network media which had its own problems right but this is something i think is, is maybe a bit more pernicious in some ways and a big problem is that it, it blinds us to the class dimension of all of this, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. the biggest problem that I try to point out in the book in the sense that if I'm watching day after day images of black people being assaulted, I don't really know who these black people are. 
Mm-hmm. Right? All I know is that they're black. Right. Mm-hmm. And it becomes almost a, a self-evident thing that the reason they're being assaulted is because of, of race and racism. And when we unpack it a bit more and actually spend some time thinking about their lives, you know, the lives of the people who are being heavily policed for me. And I think for anybody who wants to spend the time looking at it, a very different reality opens up. And it's not it's not just a question of black people being assaulted by police. It's which black people are really bearing the the brunt of of this expanded carceral apparatus. Um, I think I know that at one point in the book, I know I've talked about it in a few few other places. Um, one of the things that we get from people in the midst of a a uh, a violent act by police, sort of mm-hmm. a, a fatal killing. On the one side, you'll see the fraternal order and other pro police forces who'll try to impugn the victim. That's almost right. always right. He was no angel. Right. All that stuff right. Is. Let's talk about the person. Apparently, laws are only supposed to protect right, angels. Right. <laughs> right. To sort of set up this situation where it was justified. Uh, yeah. On the flip side, there's been a tendency for some activists, not all to really repress that, that dimension and fo- focus mm. instead on um, the fact that this person was a, a family man and had so many children and was a you know person who attended, um, you know, church services or whatever they decide to focus on in a way, both things are true, right? That the people, someone can have a, a violent past, sure. have a, a criminal past. And then also at the same time, um, be a great person. What we should be doing is uh, focusing in on what's happening to these people, right? Who are they? What do they have in common? Even when we get beyond the urban theater and begin to talk to folks in, in small towns, uh, in suburban areas, in regions of the country where there aren't very many black people, which sometimes have the highest per capita rates of police killings. Mm-hmm. When we look at it that way, we're looking at primarily uh, the most vulnerable elements of the working class, right? Even the high profile victims of, of police violence who are black. Look at their actual experiences, right? I mean, some of these people are folks who, uh, at the point of their arrest that leads to, to uh, their killing, they're doing something that, that amounts to survival crimes mm-hmm. uh, or they're living in places where uh, survival crimes, criminalized forms of work are being heavily policed, right? So like George Floyd would be a good example. I mean, he's somebody who moved to uh, Minneapolis as part of a program to support um, you know, men who had been battling with addiction and are trying to like, you know, change their lives, right? So he moves there as part of some church ministry. He gets a job as a bouncer. He works a few other jobs. Um, and at the time of of his encounter with Derek Chauvin, like so many Americans, he's unemployed, mm-hmm. right? Because of the pandemic. And he's also, uh, I think he's also been diagnosed with COVID, right? So he's in that moment, just trying to simply have a moment of, of reprieve uh, from all of the things that are happening to him. And he ends up being killed by by this cop, right? But I just think that a lot of those cases are very similar to to his, right? These aren't just um, black people who are uh, professional managerial class or bankers who are being stopped by cops. That rarely happens, and right. when it does, that person typically has much more in the way of resources and power and class position to uh, to mitigate that experience with police. So I think there's a very different situation and we're blinded to it because of the black lives matter banner, which is powerful, but powerful things can sometimes not always be good things. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about like, um, 
the uh obama's uh remember obama's beer summit the uh yeah. the guy uh with henry lewis gates <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah people always bring that up too whenever i make the class argument, that's the first thing yeah, yeah. Oh, wait a, what about henry yeah gates? which well okay but like yeah it's also like yeah well what <laughs> what about that right i mean like the, i mean like there's there's something about the way that that's sort of picked up as symbolism right. that's like really telling too because it's like okay uh, part of like what made this like a striking story is that it was very unusual, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that it's not uh, that, um, you know, for uh, for a Ivy League professor to be hassled, you know, right. by by the cops is something right. that almost never happens, yeah. uh, regardless of uh, of their race. It's also, you know, I, I you know, and it's it's, uh, you know, but it's like the way that that was sort of uh, taken as I mean, the fact that they did the beer summit, right. right. The way that, you know, that that right. was like sort of taken as this, like treated as if it was this representative yeah. instance, I think is, uh, I think is maybe kind of revealing of some of what you're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. I mean, people always bring it up. They bring up him and his gates and my, my easy response is just, you know, okay. Yeah. He got into an argument with a cop. Yeah. Um, and he ended up having a beer with the president. That's not, that's not George <laughs> Floyd. Right. Yeah. That's not, you know, yeah. uh, Freddie Gray. Yeah. If George Floyd had survived his encounter with Derek Chauvin, uh, he would, even if, even if Hillary had won the election instead of Trump, right. uh, <laughs> he would not, George Floyd would not have been gotten an invite to the White House out I of that. Doubt it. Yeah. Seriously doubt it. So, yeah, I just think like it's, it's a, it's an evasion, right? And mm-hmm. there are many of mm-hmm. those things that, that, that people uh, resort to whenever they're pressed on, um, the class character of, of policing. And I think that's, that's a big problem for the left, right? You mm-hmm. know, why can't we, why can't we talk about black people uh, as a people with classes? Why can't we talk about the specific predicament of working class blacks and especially people who are unemployed um, with some, with some precision and clarity and focus on the empirics of it all, as opposed to resorting to these broad, you know, abstractions about race. Yeah, I mean, I actually remember in the summer of 2020 seeing a prominent left-wing YouTuber who will remain anonymous for the purposes of this example. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, guess who it is. <laughs> uh, but this 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 guy had said uh, that the um, like you know it's whatever it's a tweet it's not an essay but like I, I remember it always stuck in my head you know he said this thing about you know black people and workers you know having interests in common so it's like okay wait a second yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so you know uh black people aren't divided into social right. classes like this right. is just this this like monolithic category off yeah. to the side you yeah. know that's it's uh, <laughs> different you know like white people there are workers and bosses and landlords and tenants and all that stuff right but black people are all just like one big thing right. you know right. that's um and and one big thing where everybody in the thing is in equal danger of uh of police violence right. um which is yeah, I mean, obviously, it's one of the one of the big themes of the the book, and what you've been mm-hmm. talking about is is just uh, empirically not true. You know mm-hmm. that this is that there are you know neighborhoods that are subjected to this kind of policing, and Absolutely. there are there are neighborhoods that are not. Uh, right, right. Um, I you did mention, by the way, I didn't want to let it get totally lost uh, before we get into the book. This essay that you'd written uh, years ago, mm-hmm. uh, the um, and you know turned into a, a different book, I believe. The uh, right. the, the Panthers uh, the Panthers can't save us. Uh, just because there are probably people watching right now who who aren't familiar with that that previous work, uh, you know, do you want to do you want to say just uh, just a minute about what that was? 
Yeah, so let me let me say something about the title because I think the yeah. title throws people off. Right? <laughs> you know, when they read the essay, there's folks who come away from it like, well, you know, but the Panthers did this and that and free breakfast and they were revolutionary and yeah. why would you pick on them, right, as right. opposed to some other more reactionary strand of black thinking. But the title actually comes from a specific uh, event that I went to. Um, and it was on the heels of, I think it was like less than a year after Trayvon Martin. And I was there at an event in Chicago with my kids. And there was a performance piece done by a Senegalese artist who actually was a, a situationist artist, right? From West Africa, mm-hmm. um, who since died since that, that uh, performance. But he, uh, he did a performance called every, uh, it was called the best Marxist is, is a dead Marxist, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he staged that classic image of Huey Newton, you know, seated on the rattan throne, Mm-hmm. The spin in one hand and the M1 carbine in the other. And he did it in, in this storefront, like a Harold's Chicken uh, restaurant. It was like an abandoned storefront. And he does it in a way that, you know, and he's, you know, older man with a gray beard. And he's sitting there, kind of a, a plaintive look on his face. He's sitting there. And I stood out there with my kids and, and watched this performance. And so much of that, that, um, that event, right. It was part of a um, anniversary of the Illinois Panthers Mm. and the assassination of uh, Fred Hampton and, and Mark Clark. It was filled with so much nostalgia. Right. And at that time I was hearing a lot of that as well in these conversations around Trayvon Martin, black lives matter um, things I was hearing from students. And so part of what I did in the essay was just simply say, we need to be on guard Mm. in terms of how we reach back into history to pull from whether it's the Panthers or League of Revolutionary Black Workers or whoever else, um, because we live in very different conditions, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the, the the very tail end of Jim Crow segregation. We're in a situation where, you know, Black poverty has been greatly reduced from the time period in, of which the uh, civil rights movement and Black power unfolded. And it's a, it's a, a, a situation or a set of historical conditions where, Many black people are doing well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we lose sight of that, and um, we can't resort to those same, those same uh, social movements. Even if we look to them for inspiration, we can't hope to borrow their slogans so easily mm-hmm. to talk about these new conditions. And I spent some time in that essay talking, in, in particular, about the ways in which um, black power thinking was resurfacing. Right within uh, Black Lives Matter circles, you know, calls for Black unity. Um, the idea that Black unity was necessary before anything else could happen. Um, the idea that Black people should be working on these these issues uh, on their own, right? Mm. As, a, as in, a, in the mode of kind of like an ethnic pluralist politics, as opposed to building broad based uh, coalitions throughout the society that might address inequality, and so. That was that was where it came from. It was like the uneasiness of what I was hearing around Black Lives Matter activists. And by the time it that that essay appears, mm-hmm. this is after um, you know Bernie is already in the race, and there's a whole new wave of um, antipathy towards socialist politics that I'm hearing in white circles, black circles, all around the the the, uh, the country. So yeah, that essay is driven by that, like the unease, the frustration. Mm. Uh, at, in certain moments, the anger and despair mm-hmm. uh, in this turn within American uh, political life. And I think a lot of it, to be honest, uh, the, the Obama, since you revoked the Obama earlier, mm-hmm. the Obama phenomenon 
um, bears some blame and responsibility for it, right? Because what Obama's ascension did for a lot of Black people, one, it was unprecedented and unthinkable. And I'm one of those persons who really did not think that Obama was going to become mm-hmm. president when he did. I, I thought that was something that was going to happen late when I'm in a wheelchair, possibly in a, in a nursing home somewhere, we'd see a black president. So when it happened, it took everybody by surprise. Um, he's an incredibly charismatic person. But as we all know, he was fundamentally a neoliberal guy mm-hmm. who was skillful at using the imagery and um, the imagery of New Deal talk and appealing to certain constituencies and emoting with black audiences in a certain way. And whenever he's attacked by people, right? I mean, this was another uh, indicative thing about that that stretch of, of his tenure. Whenever he was attacked, it provided this sense that no black person is safe, right? Mm. Or that there hasn't been any progress in the country, right? That we're in a, a situation where even um, a highly educated black person who's ascended to, you know, the rank of, of presidents, the president, it's still going to be attacked by racists. And so racism makes this really strong, strong comeback in a lot of, of black uh, political discourse. And so, again, as somebody who's been thinking about this for a long time and who actually did, you know, earlier work on black power, mm-hmm. it was it was frustrating, to say the least, to see how easy these ideas came back, even though they were deeply problematic and contradictory in earlier periods in which they were they were uh, first introduced. And so. That essay was a warning. Let's not go there again mm-hmm. because it's not going to deliver what we want. And I think we actually saw that in 2020, right? We saw that an anti-racist politics, even a militant anti-racist politics, could very easily be embraced by the NBA, Walmart, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, 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 literally, right? we literally had... <laughs> uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer kneeling in Kente Clock, right. <laughs> yeah, which is right. one of those things that it's like about it once about every six months. I remember that, that happened and it's like, yeah. wait, wait, really? <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. It was just, I mean, it was unbelievable at the time. Yeah. Right. And I think it, I think it helped a lot of those people. It helped a lot of Democrats to, you know, and corporations to restore uh, their image among certain segments of the population. It distracted people from those battles against uh, essential workers that had been going on in the midst of the shelter in place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the perfect exit for Amazon and Grubhub and all these other companies who were, you know, facing demands for, you know, PPE and better wages and all sorts of other things, health insurance from their employees. And all of a sudden black lives matter. There's the exit that, that allows a lot of folks to, to think about things, you know, think about other things and not essential worker demands. And so, right. Yeah, that was that was a problem, but and show that they're on the right side, right? That they uh, that they, they can have like, I mean, I'm, I'm remembering like when like Amazon, like even like Amazon would have like the little Black Lives Matter box, you right. know, on the uh, right. on the website, you know, as they're as they're literally like um, coming, you know. I mean, if God, I mean, if you think back to the chronology there, right? I mean, as they're right. like actively, you know, union busted in Staten Island and, you know, and, and doing everything possible to not keep people safe yeah. uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, one, one response I've gotten from people, you know, back when I wrote about, you know, wrote about this during 2020. Yeah. One response you always get is, well, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah. The corporations are going to try to make money off of anything. And they would typically argue like critics of, of mine and people like uh, Ture Reed, Adolph Reed mm-hmm. and others. They would say, well, really, the, the real action is elsewhere. Don't let this focus on the corporations 
distract you from the fact that there's this really militant, much more right. authentic black radical politics that's taking part, you know, taking place in the country. And people are still saying that even now, right? Whenever mm-hmm. they hear the criticism. And my response to that is that, you know, it, it's it's just the it's the level of abstraction, right? That allows us to have these these conversations about race that are are useless. Um because some of the people who we think of as like militants or radicals on the anti-racist mm-hmm. front benefited immensely from that outpouring of corporate support. I was looking at the, I'm not, I won't mention it just because I don't want to, you know, whatever. It, it opens up a way for people to dismiss what I'm saying as opposed to actually yeah. listening to the, the argument. I've looked at the actual uh, tax returns for some of these organizations mm-hmm. and their, their, you know, their revenue streams in some cases tripled. One specific situation I saw went from two million to twelve million in one year. What's like what is to be made of that, right? Why should I sit back and say, um, this is a great thing? Yeah, uh, that's the more that's the more rid- radical and authentic, you know, uh dimension of this. We know that from the very beginning, whether it's talking about the three founders of mm-hmm. BLM, the people who co- coined the hashtag. Or about talking about some of these other organizations that have been formed in different parts of the country, including places like Chicago. Some of these organizations started through foundation seed money, right? And I'm not saying that that that's on its face, you know, disastrous. Yeah. But we should be asking questions about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> we should yeah, be yeah. talking about it, right? Um, yeah. And don't come to me and 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 you know say that I'm wrong for pointing out the class mm. character of everything when you're so beholden to corporate power and foundations, right? So that's another dimension, right? I don't want to hear this criticism of what I'm doing from somebody who's, you know, at the trough of a corporation. Like, don't yeah. don't bring that, right? And if you're going to bring it, then we need to have an honest conversation about why you took this money and why, you know, here's another example. There's some of these yeah. speakers going around who are getting paid, you know, $20,000, $30,000 per talk, Sometimes more than that, right? I mean, upwards, you know, close to 100,000 for certain speakers. How is that fucking justifiable on campuses where you got people who are not even earning enough money to live in places like L.A.? Mm-hmm. You know, like what kind of social justice is that? If you take these, you know, if you take this amount of money on a regular basis, right? I mean, I remember one time when I was living in, in Western New York, we wanted to bring in a speaker of a very well-known social justice group based in a historically uh, sort of a, a place that has uh, served as a historical marker of urban blight yeah. and, <laughs> and, and disaster. Right. And this person, we, we offered everybody who we brought in as a speaker. I was a director of the center. We paid $1,500 to whether yeah, it was, was like pretty good money for giving a talk. Right. The person who was like straight out of grad school, to somebody who was like a, a retired professor or the activist. For the record, matter. anybody who's listening wants to offer me $1,500, get a yeah. lecture. I'm, I'm going to take it. But anyway, keep going. So <laughs> we get a response back, not from the, the person who we addressed the letter to, but one of their assistants who says, <laughs> you know what? Uh, we can only, or the director can only come out for 20000 <laughs> we'll send out one of our like lower level assistants in the office to come out and do a workshop for you or something like that. And, you know, I'm sitting there like, what the hell? I'm on a campus where most of the people there are like, you know, they're not, they're not wealthy. Yeah. They're living a fairly comfortable lives. But at a lot of universities, as you know, right. You yeah. got people who are like barely making it. Yeah. 
And so to me, it's, it's unjustifiable, right? Especially huh. in this moment where people rode that have wave. Students who are sleeping in their cars. Absolutely. Have, I mean, you have adjunct professors who are sleeping in their cars Absolutely. in some cases. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People without health care and everything else. So I think it's like, it's, it's moments like this. If I'm making the argument about the class character of policing, if I'm trying to yeah. make us think about, help us to think about it as being much more connected to the broader problems of capitalism, please don't criticize me if you're like the person who's so pro-capitalist, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, don't, don't I say. I don't want to hear it, right? At, at the very least, the nature of the criticism better not be, uh, no, 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 actually, there's this like wonderful, you know, radical militant, you know, right. movement that you're, you know, tarring with this stuff. If the yeah. person delivering the criticism is, you know, sitting in the Scrooge McDuck pool of gold coins from foundation right. money. Um, so, so right. yeah, I mean, one of the, uh, things that i find really interesting just about the timing of this book you know because i mean it it you know came out early this year but you mm -hmm. got um but it was in the works for for a few years you know right. before it it came out is that in a way you got really lucky and in a way you got really unlucky because mm -hmm. they um you know obviously uh you know Nobody, you know, wants, uh, you know, innocent person to be, you know, murdered to, uh, to, uh, you know, shine the spotlight on what right. they want to talk about. Right. But, uh, but there it is. Um, but you know, when you were, you know, like when this, the wheels were first turning for this mm. book, I mean, it just happened to be right when George Floyd happened. Um, but instead of being like, Oh, okay, great. That means that everybody wants, uh, right. you know, a uh, book about this right. subject. It was like, Ooh, I, I don't, I don't know about this. The, right. uh, you know, because of, because of your thesis. Yeah. So there was pushback. Um, you know, uh, originally it was a, it was a book that was being, uh, considered at a university press and it was pushed back from at least one of the reviewers who thought that this was not only ill-timed, but just, um, out of step with the history and for, you know, I mean, you can recall that moment in sure. many people thought the world was going to change. Right. You know, and I mean, in some ways it looked like, I mean, if you, I mean, think about some of that imagery, you know, the, uh, the, uh, police precinct in Minneapolis, yeah. Berlin, you know, like yeah. that, that felt like images out of, uh, a revolution. Right. Um, right. Obviously a revolution isn't what we got in the end. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was hard to, to, uh, to make sense of it. It did feel for a moment that um, at bare minimum, I have to go back and try to think uh -huh. about what was happening. And so it did, it, it stalled the project, to be honest. Um, but there, was some, there were some, some um, people who had read drafts of it who felt that now was not the time to offer a criticism of, of Black Lives Matter. And you had people like, I don't know if you remember, Kim Moody was on a mm -hmm. podcast and he use the moment of George Floyd to say that, you know, well, now people like to Reed and myself have to think about race. Right. Which I thought was absurd. Cause I'm like, I've been thinking about race my whole life. Right. <laughs> Whether I want to or not. Right. Um, so it was just an odd moment, yeah, yeah. but, but I, I, think I mean, my, my, my favorite, my favorite version of this is, um, uh, people directing that at uh at adolf reed right. uh, which is like all right so you know you grew up in the south during jim crow but like look i'm gonna tell you about this thing called race right <laughs> it's right. like you probably never heard of it but you yeah. know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's patronizing it's insulting yeah that's it's amazing part of the yeah the academic and activist culture we're, we're in but um but yeah you know I, I, there was a moment um where i didn't know what was going to happen with mm -hmm. this project and and luckily I was able to uh, 
to get it done. And I, and looking back on it, I think, you know, if, if there's nothing more that we should take from 2020, it's like, we can't, we can't be seduced by mm. the scale of protest. Um, the imagery of protest, which doesn't necessarily have bearing on, on, uh, on political power. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. so we think back to like the, the 1960s and some of those, those boycotts and sit-ins um, really starting in, in the late fifties, mm-hmm. you know, those weren't really large scale events, right? These were in communities. Oftentimes you had very small groups of people who were staging, you know, various forms of civil disobedience and, and protests and and it, it was effective because of the moment, mm-hmm. because of the strategies they were using, um, because of television coverage, which was fairly novel at the time and the way in which that was helped, you know, helped to sway the public. But I think now we live in a moment where we're always expressing our discontent mm-hmm. at all times. And I think, again, with, with the George Floyd protests, there's a tendency among folks on the left to read into it whatever they want, right? And so if you're if you're somebody who's uh anarchist who's waiting for uh capitalism and society to, to collapse mm-hmm. and then something new to sprout up in its place, you thought that was what was going right. on, right? Exactly. If yeah. you were someone who was a hardcore abolitionist, you're like thinking, well, this this is this is a uh a vote of confidence for us, right? Because you see all of these millions of people who are out in the streets. The reality is. Millions of people in the streets means millions of different motivations and mm. and uh, dispositions, right? And so you had a lot of people who were out there protesting simply because they thought what happened to George Floyd was wrong, mm-hmm. not necessarily because they were opposed to all police killings or, for that matter, they wanted to see police departments dismantled. That's certainly not the case. And we know that even from looking at public opinion polls um, across that that year and even since. So I just think that there's a especially on the left, we mm. got to be much more vigilant in terms of thinking about um, what happened in 2020, mm-hmm. why it happened and what were the consequences of it. And I think, you know, it did help some legislation at the local and mm. state level kind of move through, but I don't think it represented um, the emergence of a broad based coalition that could be sustained to advance the kinds of things that black lives matter activists in the most progressive moments really want. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, was really apparent to me at the time about that Black Lives Matter moment in summer 2020 Mm -hmm. is that um, there were, I mean, that happened for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, I I think uh, that uh, certainly something you highlight in the book that I think is, I mean, I don't know, maybe just should be obvious, but I don't hear people talk about much Mm -hmm. is that um you you can't really separate the fact that there was that much of an explosion of protest from the fact that uh so many people have been inside right. for the last few yeah. months right this was like <laughs> the first time a lot of people right. that i knew were actually going outside and seeing people right. uh and so you had all this pent up you know energy uh because of that uh there was uh certainly uh we can't uh i think separate it from the fact that donald trump uh, was, uh, was, was president and, you know, and, and had, and, uh, you know, there, there are, I think different people in that office, you know, I mean, like Mm -hmm. even as that sort of, um, you know, given maximal cynicism about, you know, what the American presidency is, there are people who would treat that job of being, you know, the CEO of the American empire in different ways. And like, 
would have had an impulse to calm that down right. <laughs> and, uh, and be a different kind of presence, you know, at the helm. Not tear gas to protest us to take a picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've actually got that that clip, Jake. If you uh, if you have the uh, the uh, the Donald Trump uh, the uh, the church photo up. We've just had to run about a block as police moved in. We've been uh, fired at with rubber bullets. My cameraman has been hit. Uh, we've also seen tear gas being used. Here we go, they're moving through again. This is exactly what it looks like. Press, press, let's go. Press, let's go. Come on. It's not going to take long. You see what's going on. It's coming back. It's coming back strong. It'll be greater than ever before. Um, yeah, I was just saying while the video was playing, I mean, it's like, he's, he's holding that thing. Like, I mean, it's like, it doesn't even look like he's holding a book in a weird way. It's just like, <laughs> uh, yeah, like that's, uh, like Trump, uh, Trump is somebody who I think his, his impulse was to pour gasoline on the fire. I mean, that's just kind of who he is. And I think a lot of the, yeah. Uh, energy uh, fed uh, fed into that, and you know one you know one thing is like okay, look, getting lots of people onto the street to protest is good. I mean, I, I you know I think it'd be very disturbing if something like that happened and uh, nobody did react to it. Uh, but it's also uh, but then you know if you're going to have a successful protest movement, I mean, some obvious questions are like what what's the goal? Like what what yeah. are you what are you trying to accomplish? And then how is it uh how is it going to be accomplished and it and it seemed you know I want to get your take on this cuz it it seemed even at the time like okay there's there's all this uh extremely justifiable anger about how policing uh works in the united states mm. but then uh is the is the goal to um is the goal to abolish the police is the goal to reform the police in some way if so in which ways you know it at its end I think the fact that it was so diffuse, I think, and, you know, very quickly, I mean, within that summer, a lot of this energy was captured by the sort of strangest forms of symbolism. I remember a, um, a good friend of mine who, uh, I guess we'll, you know, leave him anonymous. He's a podcaster in Brooklyn. So that'll, that just narrows it down to like 20,000 people. (laughs) Right. But the, uh, in, uh, you know, telling me at the time that the, uh, that the Facebook group for his his neighborhood beer bar uh, was being like barraged with like anger because it hadn't uh, issued a statement right. about Black Lives Matter. It hadn't issued a statement. It hadn't used its website since <laughs> the pandemic started. You know, but I mean, like that's the kind of thing that it seems to me that there was there was a lot of uh, that summer because if you're, I mean, if you're really angry, um, like any kind of win feels better than than no win at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the I think the the big takeaway, right? You know, um, you know, it was a, it's a slogan, right? Yeah. And and like Black Power, which you know in the '60s was a slogan first yeah. before uh, Carmichael and Hamilton backtracked to try to you know describe what they what what should be meant by it. Um, it's the same thing here, right? It's it's a slogan which is great. It's broad enough to kind of encompass a lot of different um you know sensibilities and in certain parts of the country you know i'm thinking back to when the the Mm. hashtag is first formed certain parts of the country it totally makes sense right so a place like chicago be a good example um you know over 70 percent 70 percent of the persons who are stopped by cops Mm -hmm. like harassment stops you know on a regular basis over the last decade have been black right you know in a city where black people only make up about one-third of the population 
uh, around the same figure, you know, over 70 percent of those who were killed by police uh, in Chicago or, or African-Americans. Right. So when you're in a place like that, it totally makes sense. It's like, of course, Black Lives Matter. Right. This mm-hmm. is this is this makes sense. It describes a particular kind of of injustice within policing. But as I've said before, when you get outside of places like Chicago, you find all sorts of other you know, ethnic and racial groups who are being targeted by police. And um, and Black Lives Matter has a pretty much a blind spot when it comes to that, right? How do you how do you use that slogan in Kentucky where the majority of people in, in prison in Kentucky are still white? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you use it in the Plain States or even here in the desert Southwest, you know, um, to describe very different carceral um, um, populations and dynamics? So, I just think it's it's that's part of the problem, right? That's why it becomes like easy for, you know, whether it's corporations or uh, you know bars and other places to decide yeah, how, they're yeah. gonna, how they're going to interpret it. Um, and you know, and in, in fairness to the people who've been pushing for sure. serious cost reforms for a long time, even there, and I think you know what I what I try to get at in the book is that the the focus on abolishing police I think is misguided, right? Mm. The problem here is that police uphold a highly unjust and highly unequal society, right? And so they are charged with um, arresting, detaining, um, and you know, ultimately prosecuting and, and imprisoning those persons who, who come from the most vulnerable segments of the working class, right? Plain and simple. And that's the problem, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is not police if we think broadly and in, in over history, right? Um, the good example that I always bring up, or one that I try to bring up in some some situations, especially with people on the left, is to think about other societies that we actually like, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether that's Chile under Salvador Allende or all sorts of post-colonial uh, experiments in like socialism and progressive left uh, governments, they kept police force, right? They didn't get rid of police. And so I think that we've gotten so caught up in this moment of, of uh, abolitionism and Black Lives Matter that we lose sight of how societies yeah, function. I mean, I've, I've been to Cuba. Right? I'm pretty sure they have cops there. Yeah, totally. And if they didn't, they wouldn't <laughs> exist anymore. Right? <laughs> Plain and simple. Yeah. And, and I remember saying this recently uh, on a podcast, and I got a message from a guy uh, who I think was either living in France or originally from France. And he says, well, you know, it's not just uh, capitalist states and socialist states. There's other forms of society. And so I'm like, well, give me some examples. Right. And the examples this person what, gave What are you talking about, feudalism? That's like- well, they were all experimental <laughs> things. They were like, you know, it was uh, like uh, Spanish Civil War and freaking uh, Zapatistas, which is fine, right? Sure. I'm all in favor of, of these different kinds of historical movements and exper- experiments, but you know, when we think about the society we live in, a large yeah highly populated, complex urban society. Um, how do we uphold laws? And we would hope that we get to a place where we have just laws. Sure. Right? Um, that we've, we're the ones who've crafted and authored those laws, right? You which, still which, which, have which, to have yeah. some means of enforcing them through right, exactly. territorial state power. And this is a good, a good example I get to later on in the book. Um, even when we think about Black history in the U.S., mm. There's certain moments where we see advances for African-Americans that are impossible without state force, right? So the Reconstruction Project lasts only as long as we have federal occupation of the Deep South. Right. It was necessary to keep the racist, white supremacist, planter class 
uh, at bay. The moment that it's removed after the Hayes Tilden compromise, the reconstruction yeah, which which is, is which is part, right? correctly understood now as this like horrifying betrayal, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know when that happens in eighteen seventy six, you know that that's as it should be. Yeah, you know, and the same the same even more recently, if you think about the civil rights period, right? I mean, yeah. after the the Brown decision, it's not like uh, Southern segregationists said, "Well, let's take the placards down and open up the ballot box and and the you know yeah. the whites only schools." They had to be forced to do that, right, by interventions of the National Guard, federal marshals, even the use of the 82nd Airborne at one point, right, to, to try to force Southerners, white Southerners, to abide the new laws that had been passed in the country, right? So I just think it's like we Which lose sight of that because what we I, I actually remember there's a uh, – so there's a Adolf Reed essay. I think it's The Whole Country is the Reichstag, that right. one where he has Absolutely. this – this yeah. line where he's recalling sitting in a bar with the late Christopher Hitchens uh, right. arguing <laughs> about the war in Afghanistan. Right. And, uh, and in, uh, in the, in the course of it, um, Adolf says uh, that uh, the 82nd airborne has never improved any place by its presence. Right. Uh, not even Fayetteville or, you know, <laughs> Arkansas where right. it's from, at which point, he recalls his son, our mutual friend, Teray Reid, piping up and reminding him yeah. of the exception, which yeah. is the one that you just said, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, okay, separate subject. But yes, that yeah. actually is a case where it was good uh, that the 82nd Airborne was uh, right. uh, was was sent somewhere. somewhere. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I, I really like the way that you you set this up because, yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very um, – you know, I think people, something that, you know, I say this with love, people who have radical political horizons, which you should have, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I'm all for that. I think sometimes do this like kind of overly quick logical leap from such and such institution hasn't always existed yeah. uh, or hasn't universally existed to therefore it'd be fine if we got rid of it because right. – of course, if you think about that one, well, okay, I mean, what are some other things that haven't always existed? You know, broadband, right. indoor plumbing, you know, like that's yeah. like, there are lots of things that haven't always existed, but it'd be really, uh, really, really bad if uh, if they went away. And, you know, and I think that uh, how to think about the the police case in here, um, well, I, actually, if, if it's okay, so I, I think we have a clip of uh, of you talking about this uh, elsewhere, mm-hmm. where you know I, I think you can kind of see the you know the back and forth of the two perspectives here. Um, Jake, do we uh, do we have that clip? The point about uh, police and socialism is a is more of a, a broad level point of can we completely do away with police, right? Not not that we should justify what police are doing now within the context of bourgeois society, right? That's not, that's not my point. The other thing I would say is this, right? So again, there are moments when many of us would want to see, not just in school shootings, but historically, um, police intervention. I don't think the, I think military and police, they're pretty much on the same continuum, right? One is deployed, one is deployed internationally and one is deployed domestically. And there's moments when, um, you know, there's moments when they're, they're, uh, they're, the roles tend to bleed together, right? So the other right. thing and, I'll say- And that's, go, that's go ahead, go ahead. the critique. I mean, that's why they're being critiqued. I mean, I, I think, look, I, I'm that's, not- That's not I my critique though. <laughs> but I, I don't want to misrepresent abolitionists right. and, I, and I don't want to make bad arguments on their behalf. But my mm. understanding is, 
But I, I really kind of object and bristle to this against this argument that like, well, there has to be somebody doing something. I mean, nobody is arguing like we're not libertarians. Nobody's arguing that we're going to have laissez-faire nothingness going on. The whole argument is I don't care if you call them police. If it, if it helps people like intellectually wrap their minds around it, call them police. I don't care what you call them. They're still our police. The point is that you shouldn't have Im- terrorists with immunity with guns and the um, qualified immunity to go around and kill people with impunity who disproportionately right. target poor neighborhoods instead of targeting those neighborhoods with the kind of benefits that could actually alleviate, ameliorate poverty in the first instance. So like the, the idea that Cuba has an army to resist invasion or has in the middle of a, of a coup or, or a, a, an attempt to re- take over government is militarized and people are, have, have, have taken up arms in this, in, in the effort of liberation I think that is so far removed from any conversation about whether or not there should be a number I can call if I am assaulted on the street that and that there should be remedies when when that for the person who assaulted me other than the carceral right. tracks that we all know have very little effect in terms of rehabilitation which tend to concretize people's early um you know, uh, involvement with the criminal justice, and they just become more criminalized by their uh, connection with the system. They are further penalized when they come out because they're disenfranchised and unable to find work because they're re- have, by design of our uh, um, ca- capitalist society, a permanent mm-hmm. underclass of unemployable people. All of those things are what the abolitionists are getting at. And it feels also what you're getting at, too. This is exactly what I'm getting at. But the, the difference, though, right? So we're on the same page in that regard. And that's where I think, you know, what you're saying was what Rashad was saying. There's not a whole lot of different distance between the two arguments, right? That policing under this particular form of uh, post-industrial in quotation marks, right? Post-industrial capitalism is deeply problematic, right? That's, 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 there's no quarrel with that. What I'm saying to those persons, and there are some abolitionists who totally believe in complete you know, ridding ourselves completely of of uh, of police, right? Tomorrow, what I'm saying, huh? or yeah, eventually, well, when tomorrow. there's these eventually, broader structural changes, whenever they think it's going to happen, I, I still think, and and I'll give you some. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you want me to relive that? that yeah, right? I'm, I'm sorry. I, uh, I should have should have put a trigger warning on that, but the uh, but. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a like, there is something uh, actually at the very end there, uh, you know, and I and I do want to get to the more substantive issues that you're, I think, correctly focused on there. But mm. like, there's sort of very small terminological gripe that I have at the end there, which is that mm. it's like, well, hold on, if you're calling a movement abolitionism, there's an implied analogy there, right? right. Like that we're, you know, like we abolition, abolish it, right? Abolition of slavery. That's the original abolitionism. That that that's. Uh, you know, nobody called people like if you'd said in 1855, well, look, I'm not saying we can get rid of slavery tomorrow, right. but, you know, maybe someday we can come up with like, you know, good cost efficient ways of growing crops and, you know, we won't need right. slavery anymore. Nobody would have called you an abolitionist. Like, <laughs> if you'd had that position. Like, you know, if you're an abolitionist, you know, you presume you do want to abolish something tomorrow, right away, yeah. as soon as possible. That's what abolition means. Like, just saying that, like, right. you hope it's going to wither away someday. You know, that's not abolition. Yeah. 
I mean, well, two quick things, man. I mean, first of all, with the abolitionists, the, the historical ones, I was about to say with the real abolitionists, right? The yeah. historical ones, they wanted to abolish slavery and they understood that state power was going to be necessary to do that, right? Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. And then, and then again, now, I mean, they didn't want to abolish the state. Yeah, this, the slave right. owners weren't just going to, you know, like they weren't going to go to the plantations, give the slave owners a really good argument, yeah. and then they were just going to do it. <laughs> but, I mean, I think this is the bigger thing that comes out for me, right? I yeah. think, thinking broadly about the left, right? We've been, we've been uh, most of us have grown up in a period in which we haven't seen a government that was worth the shit at the national level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't seen... Uh, We've actually lived through a period in, in which we, we, we witness deep rollbacks of all sorts of progressive policies. I mean, there's some things that are happening, especially in places like L.A. and, and Chicago. But um, we've been we've been seeing a losing battle for so long. So many of us, whether it's, you know, progressive folks who supported Sanders or people who dream of socialist or anarchist futures who can't imagine governance. Right. Which will require you know, uh, territorial forms of authority in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Territorial forms of power, which at the heart of it, you know, if, we, if we're thinking about some sort of sovereign um, entity, requires force. Right. Even if it's not always exposed to us, right? It's still necessary at certain points. So, you know, I think as another point where Brianna mm-hmm. and I get into a conversation back and forth about uh, qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it kind of gets lost. I think there was some moments where we were like talking past each other. And I know some states are stepping forward to try to do away with qualified immunity for police officers, right? So if, mm-hmm. if they discharge their weapons, which most, the vast majority of police never do. Of course, right. right. Um, but if there's a situation where they do, they can be criminally prosecuted. They won't be protected. Um, and it's, they could be gone after civilly, right? That's the big thing with right, qualified immunity. Right. Uh, and my response to her was like, who the hell would want to be a police officer? Right. Uh-huh. I mean, you your specific job, you uh-huh. know, as a police officer is to be the person charged with carrying out state violence, right? right, right. When necessary, whether that's you know, a, a situation where there's a, a mass shooting and you have to go into a building and there's no you you know, you have to think about I don't want to be prosecuted if I have to shoot this this suspect yeah, I mean, identified, I got- or even on a more on a more yeah. mundane level, if there's a, a accident on the on the freeway. Yeah. Right. To be able to pull your car out and say, everybody can't, you know, you have to go around me. You can't yeah. come in this lane or this street is blocked off. You can't walk yeah. down the street. There's certain moments where, you know, or just detaining somebody. So if I'm speeding on the highway, which, which I have, if a cop throws on his lights, you know, behind me, and he doesn't have any power to really stop me. Yeah. Why the fuck would I stop? Right. Other than it's just goodwill to say like, oh, well, I'm, I must be speeding and I'm breaking the law. I should stop. Right. So I think there is a place where forces operate in our society and in most human societies that I know of. Maybe there's some, yeah, I mean, I guess another, to be... you know, another historical plane that I don't know about. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that in this moment, that's where I think we have to start. Right. The society as it exists. Well, so so this is I mean, I guess I will just say unqualified immunity. I guess the argument is um that uh, you you want to have a mechanism to punish people if you know if they've done these things illegitimately. I mean, if they've mm-hmm. you know if they've done it legitimately and they can prove it, and you know right. this is a reason to make people wear body cams and all this stuff. Uh, there are right. a lot of like sort of nitty gritty arguments people can get into about how these you know things work. I mean, I I do think that you know 
I mean, ending qualified immunity, I think probably only goes so far anyway, because uh, most people who are involved, who are victims of police violence, uh, can't afford lawyers, right. uh, certainly can't afford, you know, uh, good lawyers. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that the sort of essential, like larger thing, you know, and I mean, just to back up to something you said a few minutes ago mm-hmm. and, you know, that clip, I mean, you know, not to you know, after, you know, Brie in particular, I just have a, you know, like, but there are a lot of things that frustrate me about the way that people talk about abolition. And a lot of them are present in that clip that there's a sort of, um, that there's a sort of combination of this rhetoric of urgency with this incredible vagueness Mm -hmm. about what the, uh, what the proposal is. Mm -hmm. But I, but I think that something you said, uh, before, uh, we, um, before we played it that I think is, is really spot on is that it's like, okay, look, there are laws, uh, there's going to be some kind of enforcement of law. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, a law without enforcement is just a suggestion, right? You right. know, that's like, it's right. going to be, you know, uh, some kind of enforcement. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, um, so, you know, my, my problem, like, sure. I mean, of course, police as they exist right now are going to be awful because mm-hmm society as it exists right now is awful that's what that's what police you know we, we part of it yeah. yeah we live in a you know wildly unequal late capitalist society and um and a super violent society right extremely violent one yes yeah. so of course the you're going to get very violent police that are enforcing that uh extremely inegalitarian you know distribution of resources you know they're they're in, they're enforcing a really unjust social order but uh you know i i would like you know i, I mean you know i would <laughs> i'd like to live in a socialist society where that was enforced you know <laughs> in, in, instead <laughs> uh but right. it's it's also particularly grim if you do have like so there's there's the version of abolitionism where you you say uh you you're incredibly vague about what exactly you're advocating and what the timeline is mm. in which you're advocating it um that uh you know, I, I, I mean, certainly I, I read, uh, Angela Davis's book, uh, are prisons obsolete mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and the, there's like the final chapter, you know, she's like supposed to finally get to, you know, what the alternatives are. And she talks about a lot of things that might be partial alternatives and might yeah. be nice reforms that I would be all in favor of. Right. But like, they don't, they just very obviously don't quite add up to like a, a vision of, of something else. But then there's also like, okay, what if you're really like a real abolit, like a real police or prison abolitionist, like mm. you, you say, like right now. So like Oren Nimney told me a discussion about this once. It's like, yes, he doesn't think anybody should ever, you know, be in uh, like, you know, we could talk about what should happen to people who are in prison right now and what transition should be, but like no new mm. person should ever be put in prison, which I think the context of this was me pointing out, Hey, I think, for example, Derek Chauvin should be in prison, right? Yeah. You know, that's like, uh, right. you know, which is not hypocritical for me because I'm, you know, I'm not an abolitionist. Uh, but, you know, if you but if you actually had uh, police abolitionism under capitalism, um, mm. then, well, at that point, what we're talking about is this grotesquely unequal and very violent social order just being enforced by private security gangs, you know. Right. Right, guardian angels or whatever. Yeah, that doesn't sound better to me. <laughs> Not at all, right? I mean, so one question I've been asking friends and and people who I talk to, because a lot of my friends do uh, subscribe to like abolitionist mm-hmm. positions. Um, 
the genealogy of abolitionism as an idea yeah. and, and prison abolitionism in particular. I mean, this is a Cold War creation, right? This is something that emerges at a time when many of us, you know, in the 80s and 90s couldn't use that term socialism uh, mm-hmm. openly. Mm-hmm. I know when I was a grad student, I, I started grad school 30 years ago this fall, right? And, you know, if you, that was the sure way to get pushed out of a conversation was to bring up the term socialism, right? In yeah. black circles and white circles and poli sci, black studies didn't matter. And I think in many ways, you know, uh, abolitionism as it emerged was a way to, on one hand, address the immediate problem of the cost of expansion, right? And on the other side, to still maintain some um, commitments to socialism without speaking those, right? Mm, and I think that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the, the confusion and ambiguity exists now, right? Because when you really press people, and I think you heard some of that in that clip with, with Bree, you know, um, if we're talking about addressing those structural, you know, conditions of structural employment and poverty and other things that police are, are the ones managing, then why not socialism? Why, why couch it in a notion of abolitionism that most Americans are going to be confused by at, at best and at worst are going to be like, I don't want that, right? Because I live in a place where we still have a tremendous amount of violence and there's pervasive insecurity, right? Places like where I grew up in Louisiana, where you've got towns that have 15,000 people and the per capita murder rate is actually higher than New Orleans. It's higher than places like Chicago, right? And so I don't want to, you know, I, I hear, I mean, I'm all for reforming uh, police and prosecuting yeah. people who, who uh, misuse their, their power and authority. Um, but I just think we should, we should square up towards a socialist politics and think about policing in that regard, right? Not with doing away with the institutional apparatus altogether and not by being distracted by mm-hmm. a focus on policing rather than the conditions of working class people who are being not only, um, um, harassed by police, but who have been screwed over by the, by the society as it exists on a day to day basis, right? That should be our focus. Yeah. Um, so, so the end of the book, I think we have a graphic of this. The uh, the conclusion uh, after uh, after the last chapter is uh, is called uh, "Abolish the Conditions." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so this is what I I really want to get into. You know, as we move into uh, the last. Um, you know the last portion of of the interview, right? Because because I think this is something that you've really you know put your finger on in the book is that there's a sure as you just said reform the police absolutely uh, there are you know there are probably like a hundred you know we could sit here brainstorming about the uh, you know like all of the sort of uh, reform proposals that have been put out that make mm-hmm. sense. And, um, and I, and, you know, my sense actually, honestly, is that most people who call themselves abolitionists or whatever, most of the sort of concrete things that they would come up with, I'd sign on to, you know, that right. it's like, yes, sure. I mean, you, you're seeing it as a step towards abolition. So I, I just think it's something we should do, but sure, let's, let's do that thing. But they yeah. have a, but, uh, but there's a sense in which, you know, having, the sort of focus on policing per se is, um, you know, is, you know, it's downstream of the, uh, the more, the more fundamental problem. And, and actually going back one last time to that Brie uh, clip of you talking to Brie, they have, you know, there's this, you know, line in there where she says, well, we're not libertarians. And I said, well, actually in a way, what bothers me about some of the sloganeering is that it sounds very libertarian uh, to me. And I think that there's a sort of pattern that plays out maybe, yeah. 
on a few different subjects where uh, I think possibly because of a kind of lack of confidence, and I'm not saying anybody in particular here, right. I'm just talking about the left in general, right. uh, lack of confidence in the sort of positive proposals. You know, we get very focused on just sort of here's the bad stuff and, you know, and we're, we're just uh, you know, we're just condemning the bad stuff and not really talking about the, uh, the good stuff. So like, you know, I, I think about like the way, like arguments about housing where people, uh, people end up, you know, it end up almost talking as if they mm. thought that the sort of good progressive option was, uh, was just let desperate people sleep in the park. Right. <laughs> you, know, that's like, you know, like that's what we want, you know, that's like, Oh yeah, this is a great society. This is exactly how it should work out. So we let you sleep in the park, you know, they, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and with, you know, with, with policing, because, you know, whatever reforms, um, you know, whatever reforms to how policing currently works, you know, we, you know, would be all in favor of, and, you know, would be good and should be done or whatever. Ultimately, what you're talking about there is reforms to how a very unjust set of circumstances are being enforced. And, you know, and you're not really talking about the circumstances themselves at that point. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's there's other parts in the book where I talk about um, and I'm not the first person to to, to focus on this, but the relationship between local policing regimes and uh, local development apparatuses, right? So, um, mm. you know, I think the examples I focus on are Chicago and Baltimore, but we could talk about mm. LA, right? I mean, and this is where, again, you know, um, the class position of many on the left blinds them to the ways in which their own experiences, whether it's in Brooklyn, if you want to pick on Brooklynites or people in other gentrifying spaces and cities, they're benefiting from these policing regimes, right? Uh, and even even if I'm a visitor or a tourist in a city and I enjoy, you know, certain restaurant corridors and uh, tourism zones and spaces, those things are made possible by uh, policing, right? The, mm. Their main focus and main strategy in many cities is to try to keep disruptive forces, and that's been for decades, out of those, uh, you know, lucrative uh, commercial zones and so yeah, i think we have to be thin serious. blue line is uh, yeah absolutely yeah. we have to be serious about why policing exists and our own culpability in it as as citizens right so mm. I, and again that opens up a different conversation than like you know derek chauvin or some other police officer who's con- convicted you know uh, committed a heinous act we're all wrapped up in this right we all mm. enjoy a particular form of society and it's our responsibility to oppose um, the uses of our public resources, whether that's to fund, you know, all sorts of disastrous boondoggles, you know, stadium projects and everything else, as much as we were against oversized police budgets, right? We should be opposed to these things that help to reproduce deep inequality in our, our society. But it's much easier. I think this is a takeaway for your audience. Why is it so easy for so many people to commit themselves to an abstract notion of abolitionism? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, not be involved in local fights to try to deal with, um, I mean, really just uh, obscene levels of wealth transfer that are taking place, you know, subsidizing private sector development. Mm -hmm. Because it's not as it's not as sexy. It doesn't gain, you know, it doesn't give you the same cachet within academic or activist circles to talk about those things. And a lot of us just don't pay attention to them. It doesn't, you know, let's let's do an experiment post about, you know, uh, how much in the way of land grants and tax breaks, you know, uh, 
some abandoned building downtown is going to get. Nobody gives a fuck about that, right? No. Until <laughs> until it creates a problem. Yeah. But that's where we should also be focused, right? So if we say that we're committed to a socialist politics, it doesn't just involve uh, opposition to police, right? And there's a great quote. I don't, I don't have the, I'm going to probably mangle it a little bit. There's a great quote from the 60s, uh, a debate that's happening in London at the Dialectics of Liberation Conference where Allen Ginsberg and Stokely Carmichael and a few other folks on a panel together. And Allen Ginsberg says, you know what? He's like, the police are just the blind, right? The police are just absorbing all of the energy. Um, he was like, they're like the, um, the, the, um, I think he said they're like the cape of the matador, mm-hmm. right? They're blinding us to what's really going on, right? We, we're sort of paying attention to that until it's too late, right? Until yeah. the matador plunges the, the sword into us. And so I think I think we're still in that same moment, right? And it's, it's pretty perceptive that Gin, Ginsburg was able to pick that up in the 1960s, right? Looking in that moment of, you know, the formation of the Panthers and Black Power with Stokely Carmichael. And even in that moment with courage say, you know what? The police are really not the main problem. They are a problem. But they're, they're connected to this broader problem of how a capitalist society, and at that point, kind of a nascent consumer society is organized. Um, and I think we have to be just as daring and perceptive in thinking about those those connections locally, right? Um, I really wish people would be just as opposed to uh, stadium construction and mm-hmm. subsidization of, of uh, corporate development as they would be to police, because I think we, we'd, we'd see a very different uh, movement unfolding in the country. Yeah. So, I mean, like, maybe let's, let's close out on this. I mean, what's the, like, what's the movement that, that we need? I mean, what's the, um, you know, what does abolishing the conditions look like? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different things. The one thing that I focus on primarily is um, the use of public works mm-hmm. as a, as a potential strategy, starting maybe with municipal or county level uh, projects and going back to the, the old vein of, you know, genuine public works, right. State financed and state managed. Mm-hmm. Um, that addresses this problem of of unemployment, but maybe more importantly, begins to to use uh, our labor in a way that um, is about you know use values right at the local level. So think or, or potentially the national level, right? So if you think back to the Works Progress Administration, mm. um, New Deal. I mean, they did all sorts of things that were not going to be taken up by corporations because they just weren't profitable. They were, but they were still valuable to us as citizens, right? So um, Works Progress Administration, various buildings that were, you know, uh, constructed around the country, um, tourism guides, you know, literacy projects. Um, and one of my favorites, a oral history project on slavery, which actually went around and recorded the voices of people who had been teenagers and children during the last years of, of the uh, antebellum slave regime. And so, Things like that, right? I mean, if we think about it now, there's all sorts of work that can mm. happen in our society um, that could bring value to uh, cities, yeah. that could improve the conditions for people in cities, and that, and that could provide some gainful employment for people in a moment where we know that, you know, given capital intensification, many jobs are, are under threat and many have been already been eliminated. But I just think it's, it's a more creative strategy. The other thing is just decommodification of, uh, many things that we need, right? mm. whether that's housing, uh, transportation, healthcare, 
And we got to have these conversations. I'm not saying it's going to happen to borrow Bree's term tomorrow. Sure, sure. But, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but we got to start working on it, you know, t- yeah. today and tomorrow in order for it to ever happen. So. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking it's like, well, also, um, you know, if we're going to have a climate transition uh, on right. anything like the, the scale that we need to to avoid the most, you know, destructive consequences, mm-hmm. um that's uh, those those are a lot of jobs that the public sector could be creating right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, just decommodification. I mean, that's that's for me a huge thing. Right. I mean, you know, think about a place like L.A., the, the housing crisis here. I think we got to connect those. I've been in a bunch of conversations with folks. They always want to talk about homelessness. And I'm like, dude, homelessness or the unhoused population is the worst manifestation of mm-hmm. a terrible housing crisis across right. the whole region, right? I mean, the amount that people are paying for for housing here, you know, I'm spe- preaching to the choir, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> but, say, I, I can but it's all a part of the same yeah. problem, right? Yeah, but yeah. Don't you know? It's like it's easier again for them to think about how bad it is for the guy who's at the you know intersection with a with a cardboard sign, and not about how this is connected to the yeah the water. person who's still housed but is is being housed precariously yeah. and has like, yeah. And only a, a step away from being, you know, unhoused and sleeping in their cars, which, you know, I think here there was even a proposal of creating like sheds mm-hmm. that were protected spaces that. where folks could park their cars and sleep overnight. Right. So, I mean, what, that's not a solution. No, right? <laughs> <laughs> no that's, that's so grim, you know, that yeah. this is the, uh, you know, we're, we're in the third decade of the 21st century and the most like, uh, you know, technologically yeah. advanced, prosperous society that's ever existed in human history. It's like, I don't know, maybe we could build a shed. So, you know, like, you know, you've got to be able to do better than that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got to do something. And and I think, um, you know, the, the public work strategy yeah. is, is one way to go, right? One way to start, start the process. And I think it's doable in places where you already have um, left-leaning, mm. you know, uh, politicians in place it's one thing that we could propose um you know chicago might be one one that's the example i give it's one place where it could happen yeah no that makes sense especially now um after after the last election uh well look there are uh i could very happily sit here and keep talking to you about this for the next five hours but uh we uh, we probably yeah yeah absolutely well you are uh you were telling me uh before off air that even though sadly you're not gonna be living here anymore you know you do have some trips back uh planned uh i don't you know you know, enough universities have come up with that $20,000 to give you per right. speech. You know, that's, uh, the, uh, that's the, price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. Uh, pretty standard. Uh, but yeah. Uh, so, so we will definitely have to, uh, to make this happen, sure, uh, sure. again, but yeah, the, uh, the book is, uh, after black lives matter. Uh, so, uh, that is from Verso. People can, uh, people can order it from there. They can order it from all of the, uh, all the standard, uh, book places. Uh, it is, uh, Cedric, uh, is a really good writer in ways that, uh, lefty intellectuals who are right about things politically are not always, you know? So, uh, uh, so, uh, people should, uh, people should check that out. Uh, in just a few minutes, so right at the top of the hour, we're going to start uh, the post game for GTA patrons. If you are a patron, 
you should already have uh, the uh, the link for that in your inbox. You go to the Patreon and find that. If you're not a patron, then um, that is uh, five bucks a month. You get access to all of patron exclusive post games. Sometimes we do patron exclusive streams. You get uh, the Discord server. There have been movie nights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Most importantly, since nobody is giving me twenty thousand uh, dollars to give a speech, uh, this uh, you you keep this going, right? The uh, uh, this you you have if you like what we do here, uh, you you want us to uh, to be able to keep paying Jake and Andy and you know and and uh, and reserving studio space and all that stuff. Uh, uh, this is uh, this is the best way to uh, to do it, and you have our eternal love and gratitude for uh, for doing that. So uh, we are going to be back in like five to ten minutes uh, with uh, with debunk song creator uh, and DSALA activist uh, Ed Keenan. Really looking forward to that conversation. Left is best.